So turn with me to Luke chapter 13. Seems odd to say that after such a long time. We return this morning to our series, Follow Me, a walk through the Gospel of Luke. Week 63. If my calculations serve me correct, by the end of September we'll be at week 91. We'll only have three chapters to go to finish out Luke. Crazy that we're finally coming to the end of it. So, who wrote Luke? Luke. Who is he? Who did he write to? Who else? Who's Theophilus? Important man. Says, oh, excellent. Why did Luke write? Exactly. So as we return to Luke, Super Bowl 53 kicks off in three weeks, and all eyes will be on the commercials. Which is the GOAT? One of the best and most well-known commercials of all time, contender for GOAT, or greatest of all time in the commercial department, is actually from the 1980s. A Wendy's commercial. Made famous by the one-liner slogan, Where's the Beef? Y'all remember this? Three little old ladies are looking at this huge burger. It certainly is a big bun. It's a very big bun. A big fluffy bun. It's a very big fluffy bun. And they pull the top bun off. There's this itty bitty patty. And it's an even smaller piece of cheese. And one little bitty sad pickle. And Clara Peller comes up and she goes, Where's the beef? Three times. Where's the beef? Where's the beef? As the young people would say today, that's a way for Wendy's to throw shade on the other fast food chains for the lack of beef in their burgers. Because the moral of the story, when I go to Burger City, I don't want to know how good their pickles and their lettuce and their tomatoes and their condiments are. I want to know how good is the beef. The quality of a burger is always the beef. Here's the application. Jesus comes looking for true faith amongst Israel. And he finds plenty of fluff. A lot of big buns, a lot of pickles, some high quality lettuce, tomato, and onion, but very little beef. You could say it was heavy on the fluff and light on the faith. And thus his reaction, such as in Luke 7, when he comes across <laughs> true faith. Luke 7 Verse 9, when Jesus heard these things, he marveled at him and turning to the crowd that followed him, this is the Roman centurion, said, I tell you, not even in Israel have I found such faith. Which begs the question, what does true faith look like? How would you recognize it in your own life? How would you recognize it in someone else's life? Well, can I tell you that it looks and smells like repentance? Just as in looking for a burger, the focus is on the beef, not the buns, the pickles, the lettuce, tomato, the onion. When Jesus comes looking for uh, faith, His focus is not on how much money somebody has dropped in the offering plate last week, how many religious activities they have stuffed their calendar with, the quality of their self-righteousness, how many times they've read through the Bible, but always the repentance, how many times the Bible has been through them. The key to faith is repentance. Think of faith and repentance as two sides of the same quarter. Just as you cannot separate heads and tails, you cannot separate faith and repentance. It's impossible. If you, can, if you do not remember anything else, remember this. It's impossible to exercise true faith without exhibiting real repentance. And so Jesus comes in the first century and he says, where's the beef? Where's the repentance? It's repentance time, which is actually the title of the message, repentance time. Jesus comes in the 21st century and you know what he says to us this morning? The exact same thing. Where's the beef? Where's the repentance? It's repentance time and it would do well for us to have ears to hear what the Holy Spirit says this morning to the church because it's still repentance time. So stand with me to honor the reading of God's Word, Luke chapter 13, verses 1 to 9. 
I'm getting my old eyes and my glasses here and my eyeballs correct. There were some present at that very time who told him about the Galileans whose blood Pilate had mingled with their sacrifices. And he, Jesus, answered them, Do you think that these Galileans were worse sinners than all the other Galileans because they suffered in this way? No, I tell you, but unless you repent, you will all likewise what? Perish. Of those 18 on whom the tower in Siloam fell and killed them, do you think that they were worse offenders than all the others who lived in Jerusalem? No, I tell you, but unless you what? Repent. Repent, you all likewise perish. And he told this parable, a man had a fig tree planted in his vineyard, and he came seeking fruit on it and found none. And he said to the vine dresser, Look, for three years now I have come seeking fruit on this fig tree, and I find none. Cut it down, why should it use up the ground? And he answered him, Sir, let it alone this year also, until I dig around it and put on manure. Then if it should bear fruit next year, well and good, but if not, you can cut it down. The Word of God of the people of God, preaching the power of the Spirit of God. Let's pray. Father, I pray that you would help each and every one of us just to put aside everything as we sang about earlier, even ourselves, Father. Everything that would cloud our mind and distract us from focusing upon what you would have us to hear over the next 30 or 40 minutes, Father. I thank you for this day that you've given us. Thank you so much for the time we've had to worship you thus far. Father, in prayer, in the children's moment, and Father, the singing that we have had, and now the preaching of your word, and then finally, Father, the giving of our tithes and offerings. Thank you so much for all you do for us. I pray that each and every one of us would leave here today, and we would truly know what faith is like, that it is impossible to have it without exhibiting real repentance. And Father, that we would leave here having examined ourselves to know for sure 100% that we have had an encounter with you, and Father, that has resulted in the fruit of repentance. For it's in Jesus' wonderful and precious name I pray. Amen. Amen. Alright, so a little context. The context of chapter 13 is what? What's the context of chapter 13? <coughs> no, the context of chapter 13. If you want to know the context of chapter 13, then where do you go? Chapter 12. Chapter 12. Alright, back it up. So, the context of chapter 12 is specifically, let's go back and read these, verses 54 to 59. He, Jesus, also said to the crowds, when you see a cloud rising in the west, you say at once, what? If y'all see a big black cloud coming from the west, what do you know is coming? Rain. Rain. He says, you say a shower is coming, and guess what? Y'all are real smart people. A shower is coming, and it happens. And when you see the south wind blowing... When I step outside and I'm going hunting and I see it's a north wind blowing, what can I expect? It's going to be cold in the deer stand. And guess what? Genius, it's cold out there when the north wind is blowing. It happens. He says, you're hypocrites. You can interpret the physical weather, but you can't interpret the spiritual weather. You don't even know what the present time says. Because what did Jesus say from the very beginning? Repent, for the kingdom of God is at hand and believe in the gospel. Why do you not judge for yourselves what is right? As you go with your accuser before the magistrate, make an effort to settle with him on the way, lest he drag you to the judge, and the judge hand you over to the officer, and the officer puts you in prison. I tell you, you'll never get out until you've paid the very last penny. Let me ask you. Noah, if you got pulled over for speed and reckless driving and the officer said, son, I've got a $10,000 ticket for you and you've got to pay it right now and you know you ain't got $10,000, at least I don't think you got $10,000 in your bank account. You might shock us, but let's say you didn't have $10,000 in your bank account. What would be your best course of action? Say, please, sir, don't give me no $10,000 ticket. I can't take it. Jesus' point is, we each have an indefensible case before God. Don't try to argue with Him. You better just throw yourself at His mercy, put faith and trust in Him, and repent of your sins, and turn towards God, or you're going to be there until you pay the last penny. And the point being, you can't pay the last penny. So that is the context. So now let's pick up here with this, and I want you to notice first a historical incident, or an incident in verse 1. Look at what 
Luke says, There were some present at that very time who told him about the Galileans whose blood Pilate had mingled with their sacrifices. So note first here what Luke is recording is a real-life, factual, historical incident. And you would say, well, duh. But not so fast. We have no, count it zero, documentation of any such incident in extra-biblical secular history. And so critics of the Bible will take stuff like this and listen to me, young people. Let me ask you, Will Coley, when has your faith been challenged the most? Was it when you were in our house when you were 12 years old? Was it when you were talking to your friends potentially at Brighton High School? Or was it when you had been at uh, U of M surrounded by people who do not believe that this is true? U of M. Did you hear him, young people? Do you hear him, Kyla? Girl, I love you to death, and I know that you are super strong in your faith, but do you know that it's about to be tested beyond anything you have ever experienced? People will use garbage like this to say that the Bible is wrong. And Kayla, they will try to get you to turn your back on the Bible and turn your back on Jesus Christ. Have they not tried to get you to do the same thing, son? Listen, young people. You're kind of protected right now because you're in your mom and your daddy's household. But my faith does Will Coley no good when he's down at U of M. Jimmy Hicks' faith is not going to do Tanner any good when he's with all his buddies. And so they'll use this to try and shoot holes in Scripture. And so here's the logic. Nobody else records this. Luke records it. It must be what? Fallacy. And the Bible must be in what? Error. And so the Bible's nothing more than Grimm's book of fairy tales for adults. We see this over and over, and I'm going to give you a couple examples if you want to write them down from the Old Testament and the New Testament. The Old Testament, Hezekiah's tunnel. It's mentioned in 2 Kings 20, 20. For years, hundreds, thousands of years, they said it did not exist. And because they did not find it and said that it did not exist, then the Bible was wrong. And they discovered it in the 1800s, archaeologically. Genesis 23, I'll just read you there. Marty and I were looking through that yesterday. I'm, if I, unless I miscounted, nine times this is the account of when uh, Sarah has died and Abraham is looking for a burial place for her. It says, such as in verse 3, And Abraham rose up from before his dead and said to the Hittites, Nine times in that chapter, the Hittites are mentioned. And this is what people said about the Hittites, that they were the quote-unquote invention of biblical authors. That it was nothing more than a myth and a fairy tale. They discovered the city of the Hittites in the 1870s, and they excavated it in modern-day Turkey in 1906 and proved the Bible was correct. Sodom and Gomorrah, Genesis 19 it's been long viewed as legend created to communicate moral principles. Finally, they discovered it in 1924. It was excavated in the late 60s and early 70s. And guess what they found had uh, happened to the place? A massive fire had destroyed it. A couple of examples from the New Testament. The Synoptic Gospels. That's Matthew, Mark, Luke. They mentioned Pilate. People said Pilate didn't even exist. There's no record in history whatsoever that Pilate existed. 1961, they found an inscription on a stone now called the Pilate Stone that said Pontius Pilate. <coughs> Luke, if you remember in Luke 3, he mentions Lysanias, Tetrarch of Abilene. And this is what some authors say about it. History is virtually silent about it. It was discovered in 1850, an inscription to him. John mentions the Pool of Siloam. It was discovered in 2004 here recently when they were digging in Jerusalem to put in some sewage and drainage pipes. And so some people would say, because Luke records this and nobody else does, then Luke is in error and the Bible is in error. But if we look at the Galileans and at Pilate, this incident is entirely in keeping with what we know about both of them. First, the character of the Galileans. They were hot-blooded rabble-rousers. 
one uh, author said they were the most seditious people in the land. Dr. Barclay said they were always liable to get involved in political trouble because they were a highly inflammable people. In Acts 5.37 we read of Judas the Galilean that re uh, leads a revolt. So this is entirely in keeping with their character that they would be stirring up problems potentially in Rome and in Jerusalem. The character of Pilate, what do you know about him? He was ruthless. One person said he was a headstrong, strict authoritarian who although both rational and practical never knew how far he should go in a given case. And so he would often provoke the Jewish people to write. Look at Luke 23, 12. Herod, who was a king, Jewish king. Remember, Ju uh, Jesus is sent before Herod because Pilate sent him there. And look at verse 12 of 23. And Herod and Pilate became friends with each other that very day, for before this they had been in enmity with each other. Pilate did not like the Jewish people, and the Jewish people did not like. Pilate. And so what John Gill says is as far as this incident, this occurred at Passover because that was the only time that non-secular people could actually offer sacrifices. And so this occurred at Passover. Followers of Judas of Galilee, who I just mentioned, were trying to throw off the Jews from the Roman government and said it is not lawful to give tribute to Caesar. So Pilate gets all upset and enraged and he sends a band of soldiers to kill them those who had come up for the feast of the Passover and as they were offering their sacrifices in the temple, it mixed their blood with the blood of the Passover lambs. And so, sounds pretty reasonable, doesn't it? Well, we don't have any documentation, but what we must ultimately assert is this, is that the Bible is not a history book. The Bible is not a science book. The Bible is a God book. It is first and foremost a theological book, not a history textbook or science textbook. Yet when the Bible speaks on history or science, it's 100% accurate. There has been no scientific, historical, or archaeological finding I know of yet to contradict Scripture. And so let me ask you, young people and older people, Kayla, as you get ready to go off to college, do you believe in the inerrancy of Scripture? Do you believe the Bible is without error? If you can't trust the first four words of it, in the beginning God, then you can't trust the rest of the words of it that Jesus Christ is raised from the dead and He's the only way to heaven. And second, think about it. What if the nightly news comes across with this and says that science confirms the Bible? Archaeology confirms the Bible. Shake your head like that. As Dr. Rogers says, if a scientist comes and tells me that he believes the Bible, it's not going to give me more confidence in the Bible, but it might give me more confidence in the scientist. Here's the thing, whether you believe that the Bible is true or you believe that the Bible isn't, you know what it is? It's a faith-based proposition. You know why I believe that this is the Word of God? Because of faith. You know why I believe that Luke is writing of a real incident? Because of faith. But it's more than just a historical problem in this passage. It's a theological one, and that's the one that Jesus gets at. So there's not only a historical incident, but there's then a hard interrogation. Look at what Jesus says, And he answered them, Do you think that those Galileans were worse sinners than all the other Galileans because they suffered in this way? No. Look first there at what we read in verse 1. There were some present at that very time who told him about this. And let me ask you this. Stop and ask you this. What do you think was their motivation? Why do you think they came and told Jesus this? I mean, a couple things I thought of. Well, I mean, maybe it could just be information. You think they just wanted to tell Jesus about this because he didn't know about it? That's possible. You think curiosity? Maybe they want to know, well, Jesus, what do you think about this? What do you think about Pilate doing this? What do you think about these Galileans that are rabble-rousers? You think it might have been more sinister? Look at John 11.53 or I'll read it for you. John 11. 
53. So from that day on, they made plans to put him to death. What were they doing from the very beginning of Jesus' ministry? Constantly looking to trick him and trap him so they could kill him. Maybe that's why. Maybe they were hoping Jesus would speak ill of Pilate. Guess what happened if he would have spoke ill of Pilate? He's going to be in trouble with the Romans. What if he spoke ill of the Galileans? Well, then he'd be in trouble with the Jews. What if he agreed with the Galileans? Well, he'd be guilty of treason with the Romans. What if he agreed with Pilate? He'd be guilty of blasphemy to the Jews. So it could have been more sinister, but I think most likely in context of chapter 12, it's actually theological. And especially in light of Jesus' response, do you think there were sinners or do you think there were offenders? And let me just put it this way. If, Jesus, if it was more sinister, Jesus isn't playing that game, is He? He refuses to be baited. He doesn't speak ill of neither, nor agree with either. Second off, if it's theological, how does Jesus always do? Always do? He gives your question with a question. And so let's look at the error of their thinking. First off, the error of their thinking is this. Worse sinners, worse offenders. So to them, think of this. Three D's equals a D. Disease, disaster, death equals displeasure. Job's friends made that mistake. Job, all this stuff has happened to you. You must have done something wrong. Have y'all ever had that? People do that to you? You ever uh, opened up with somebody about something, J-Rod, and they said, well, you probably deserve that, man. You know, God's probably punishing you. I mean, they pulled Job's friend on you. And just hope that they don't pull Job's one friend and said, well, now Marty, you got that, but you really deserved even worse. But don't we still do this today? And so that was the error of their thinking. And so if you suffered in uncommon ways like the Galileans or this tower that fell or the man that was born blind in John 9.3, they said you were guilty of some severe immorality. Marty and I talked about this yesterday. Said it'd be, it'd be like me saying, well, Marty's got leukemia, so man, he must have committed some really, really bad sin. He must have done something bad to deserve that. They thought calamity equaled iniquity. But here, listen to the assumption. The assumption was then this. We're over here and we're doing grand. Last time I checked, no tower fell on top of me. And the last time I checked, I didn't have leukemia. And the last time I checked, I'm still breathing. I'm still alive. Therefore, God must be pleased with me. Do you see the assumption? And so, Jesus comes with the correction. Look at what He says. Do you think these Galileans were worse sinners? He says, shake your head like this. Nope. Do you think those that the tower fell on them were worse offenders? Shake your head like this. Nope. And so, disaster, disease, death do not always equal that God is mad with us. Don't you even do that sometimes when something bad comes in your life? What is the first thing? I don't know, maybe y'all aren't like me and you don't do like I do, but the first thing I think of is, God, what did I do to deserve this? What have I done? What do I need to repent of? And that's good to some degree because I should do a inventory and see is there something I've done that has brought this on. But so many times we allow the devil to speak to us and tell us God is angry with you and it's just part and parcel of life, little less, the Christian life. And you know who the rabbis would always cite as the example? Job. But I'm thinking, did they not read? I mean, from the very beginning we're told that Job was blameless and upright. And have you read the rest of the story as Paul Harvey would say? At the end, God blessed him more than he ever had in the beginning. If God was so upset with him, then why would He bless him more at the end than He ever gave him in the beginning? And so no is emphatic. This is how it would read if Jesus were reading it. Do you think those 18 on whom the tower in Siloam fell and killed them, do you think that they were worse offenders than all the others who lived in Jerusalem? No! 
No, they are not. Here's the thing. The challenge is not whether calamity is or isn't equal to calamity. The challenge is, do I act like I'm morally superior? Well, I'm over here and I'm doing grand, so God must be pleased with me. And Jesus says, that's a big, fat, W-R-O-N-G, wrong. And so back to motive. Maybe these Judeans cited this incident because they wanted to give an example of the kind of judgment Jesus was talking about in chapter 12. And Jesus doesn't go along with that. He says, what you need to do is you need to focus on you. You need to focus on the fact that you need to repent. Think about what we do today. And I hear it all the time. I see it on social media all the time. Ooh, those people are bad sinners. And can I tell you, I even hear it amongst our own people. When we are having discussion in Sunday school and talking about application, you know what a lot of times we do? We say, well, man, America is X. Man, those other people at that other church are Y. Man, let me tell you about my brother-in-law. What we need to do is take the finger and turn it around and look at ourselves. The point of application always comes to me first. And we'll say, those people are bad sinners. Look at what happened to them. Good thing we ain't like those pagans, those Muslims, those Methodists, those sinners. And Jesus says, fooey on that. <coughs> A loving father does not discipline the kids down the street. You know why? Because they ain't his. Jimmy, do you go beat kids down the street that ain't yours? Not often, but occasionally. They probably deserve it. They're probably over at your house throwing eggs or something, aren't they? Sometimes, think of why we might have sickness. It could be because of personal sin. It could be what's called statistical evil. Brothers and sisters, we live in a fallen world, and guess what? I'm going to have to die of something. I don't know what it might be. Parkinson's, dementia. I got my 23 and me back, and I told my wife, I said, well... I got good news and bad news. I said, the uh, uh, good news is that I got one gene for Alzheimer's. Or that's the bad news. The good news is I got the gene for macular degeneration. So even though I won't know who you are, I won't be able to see you. So it won't matter. <laughs> We're going to die of something. But sometimes it's something we have done. Sometimes what God's going to use it for is personal growth. Amanda, could you get up here and we take another commercial if we wanted to and you, Marty as well, and many other people, Mr. John Martin, give a personal testimony of how some tragedy or sickness in your own life God has used as an opportunity for spiritual growth. Absolutely. And so Jesus says, don't you worry about why those people over there died. You worry about why you even got any right to live. Alright, so a historical incident, a hard interrogation, and then a heavy impasse. Look at what he says in verse 3 and 5. He literally repeats it. No, I tell you, but unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. If you know anything about first century Jews, the common assumption was this. We're Abraham's kids. We're doing alright. In fact, we're automatic ends. And can I tell you that today I hear that same attitude. Well, we're Baptists, we're Christians, we're doing all right, we're automatic ends. And I've told you the example of a man I shared the gospel with in my office one day that did not, in the, what I know of him, have any evidence of fruit of repentance in his life. And I shared the gospel with him, and his mom interrupted me and said, he knows all that, he grew up in church. The assumption she had is what? He's just an automatic end. Woman, I didn't ask you if you grew up in church. I asked you if you got true faith and true repentance. And there's no evidence of it, and he needs to repent. What did John the Baptist warn him of? That same type of attitude. Look at Matthew 3, 9. Matthew 3, 9. He said, Do not presume to say to yourselves, We have Abraham as our father. For I tell you, God is able from these stones to raise up children for Abraham. He would say, don't you presume on yourself being a good 
a member in good standing, a good little Baptist, and a member of good standing down at Crossway Baptist Church. God can raise up a member from Crossway Baptist Church from these rocks. And so what did John come saying? Repent. In John 8, Jesus has the same conversation with the Jews. They're saying, hey, we weren't born of immorality like you. We're Abraham's kids. And he said, well, if you were Abraham's kids, you'd be doing the same works Abraham did, and you sure wouldn't be trying to kill me. Repent. And so think about this as far as this tower and these Galileans. They thought they were good people doing good works, and they were all right. Consider the good works. The Tower of Siloam, they're building in God's city for God's purposes and then did it save them? It's really an illustration that good works will not save you. And think about the Galileans. They're doing what God told them to. They're sacrificing in the temple. They're in the church house throwing a $100 bill in the plate. And was that able to save them? No. Good works and good people does not matter. It ain't about religion. It's about an intimate love relationship. It's whether you have put faith in Christ and then proven it by your conduct. What's the old hymn? Trust and obey. Because there's no other way. That's it. And the heavy impasse is this. This ain't Burger King, brothers and sisters. You don't get to have it your way. You don't get... As uh, Dr. Rogers said, the Christian life is not a buffet and you say that I'll have a little bit of salvation and I'll not have any of Christ's lordship. It ain't a buffet. You don't get to say, well, I will have faith, but I'm not going to show any repentance. It don't work that way. If you are here today and you say, I believe Jesus Christ with all my heart, soul, mind, and strength, then I would say, have you bore fruit in keeping repentance? Do an inventory of your life. Put it on display. Put it on the screen up here and let all of us look at it and examine it with you and without you being biased about I'm a good person or I've done good stuff. And I don't care how much you say you have put your faith in Christ. Flip the coin over. Is there any evidence in your life that you have had a relationship that is an ongoing relationship with Jesus Christ? If not, then you don't have faith. You can say all day you got faith. I can call myself a car and I'm not a car. I can call myself a woman who is an American Indian and it does not change the fact that I am a man who is 55.6% British Irish. You can call yourself a Christian all day long because you say you've had faith, but Jesus would come and say, where's the repentance? The heavy impasse is that faith has to equal fruit. Jesus says otherwise what? Y'all likewise perish. Let me just throw this in here real quick. Who do you think Jesus is talking to when He says unless you repent? First off, He's talking to them individually. You. Second, I think he's talking to them nationally. And basically, what was he predicting? If y'all don't change your ways, this nation is coming to an end. And did it not? What happened in AD 70? <coughs> Romans came in and tore the whole place up. Can I tell you, brothers and sisters, that our country is on a very perilous path? And Jesus would come this morning and say, Nationally, if you do not repent, the time is almost over. A nation in which the number one cause of death, you know what it is? What's the number one cause of death in America? It ain't heart disease. It ain't cancer. Nope, it's abortion. We'll parade kids in front of Congress, but yet we'll kill them. And the sin that used to slink down the back alley now struts down Main Street. 
And brothers and sisters, can I tell you, our God will not be mocked. And I don't care, you can try and change your gender and change your name and this and that. All you're doing is making a mockery of what God has done and that He has created you male or female and that is it. Our nation one day soon and very soon may reap what it has sowed if it does not repent. Final thing is a heart-piercing illustration. Jesus told a parable. You know what a parable is? It's real simply this, an earthly story with a heavenly meaning. And it should have pricked their hearts. And it should have driven them to repentance. And so look at what he says. A man had a fig tree planted in his vineyard, and he came seeking fruit on it and found none. And he said to the vine dresser, Look, for three years now I've come seeking fruit on this fig tree, and I find none. Cut it down. Why should it use up the ground? So here's the earthly part of it, and then we'll get to the heavenly. A man had a fig tree planted in his vineyard, which begs the question, Why do you plant a fig tree? Miss Cecilia, why do you have an apple tree? So you can get some Christmas in your mouth, some apple butter, amen? You come out to that apple tree and you want some what? Apples. You put a fig tree in the vineyard, you want some what? Figs. And so this fellow goes out expecting to get some beautiful, delectable figs. I don't know if that's really actually a thing. But anyway, he goes out to get some figs three years in a row. The first year, he's hopeful. Man, there's going to be some figs. I planted that fig tree. I'm going to tear me one out there and I'm going to eat it. Not even wash it. And they ain't got any. Second year, he comes out there. I just know I'm going to get me a big old juicy apple. And he comes out there and now he's disappointed. Third year, he's like, I I just know this year it's going to have some figs on it, some apples on it. And he goes out there. Now he's disgusted. And he says what? Cut it down. You see the point, a fig tree in that culture was given three years to grow. Fruit. And so he comes to the gardener and he says, look, my mouth's been watering for some figs. Three years straight I've come out here wanting to get some figs and nothing. I've got a lot invested in this fig tree. Listen to that. I have a lot invested in this fig tree. And we'll come out here and it's doing nothing but using up my space and my time and all the nutrients in my vineyard. I'm sick of this. Cut it down. Don't miss out on this for the spiritual point in a minute. That this tree is robbing other trees of nutrients. The vineyard would be better off without it. And the vine dresser says, Sir, just give it one more year. I'm going to get something out of it. Let me just give it some personal TLC. I'm going to dig around it, fertilize it. I'm going to sing Kumbaya to it. He didn't say that. But he says, if it bears fruit, great. Then you got what you wanted. If it don't, then you can cut it down. The point is that it deserved to be cut down when? Right now. But what was going to happen? Mercy was going to be shown. But the other point is this. Judgment was coming. So here's the heavenly. Look at what it says. And he answered him, Sir, let it alone this year until I dig around it and put on manure. Then if it should bear fruit next year, well and good. But if not, you can cut it down. A vineyard is a picture of Israel in Scripture. Fig tree is a picture of Israel in Scripture. There is no doubt who Jesus is talking to here, Israel. The owner of the vineyard is God and the caretaker is Christ. Why did God save Israel? For a purpose. To be a light to the Gentiles. Why did He save you? Do the same. To use up valuable oxygen? To be a minister of reconciliation and share Christ with others. Why do you plant a tree? You want some fruit. Why did God plant Israel? He wanted some fruit of repentance. And so he goes out the first year, he's hopeful to see some fruit of repentance. And guess what? There's none. The second year he goes out, hopeful to see some fruit of repentance. He's disappointed. The third year, he's disgusted. And you can almost hear the father say to the son, look, my heart desires and my glory demands some figs. Three years straight, I've come out here expecting to get some figs. Zilch. I've got a lot invested in this fig tree. This thing is wasting my time, my oxygen, my vineyard. Cut it down. Remember what I said? This tree is robbing other trees of nutrients. 
Can I tell you that sometimes, just in the five years that I've been a pastor, do you know that the least fruitful folks in the church are often the ones that rob her of the most nutrients? Do you know that the people that have caused me the most grief have been those who have shown the least fruit in our church? I love what Dr. Barclay said. Listen to this. You listening? He said, the most searching question we can be asked is of what use were you in this world? Of what use were you in the vineyard? Molly, why do you think God gave you the breath of life? To use it for Him. Absolutely. You know what they say? Out of the mouth of babes. I hear grown people all the time. Well, I guess God's got a plan for me. or got some purpose for me. Duh! The moment He doesn't, your breath will be gone. And the warning is, brothers and sisters, if we don't get busy getting used, it might be time to cut the tree down. Let me finish up with this on this part. Who is Jesus speaking to? Again, nation and individual. What is He speaking of? What is the fruit that He's, He wants from me? i tell you a couple of things. One, He wants souls. Which begs the question, am I a soul winner? I told Marty, we talked about this two weeks ago. I told him, I said, man, there's going to be some Saturday mornings you and I can meet together and I'm going to say, dude... It was an awesome week. I shared the gospel with three or four people. And there's going to be some people I'm going to come together with him and, we're going to, and I'm going to be accountable to him and J-Rod and I'm going to say, man, I didn't do a good job this week. Here's the thing up. Thing, don't beat yourself up over last week. Can't do anything about that. It's water on the bridge. What you can do is you can share the gospel with somebody this week. God's planted you and gave you oxygen and nutrients for a reason to be a soul winner. He's got a lot invested in you. And in mercy, Matthew 25, are we doing those acts of kindness as Vicky talked about this morning? I mean, you see some old person at the grocery store struggling? Load of groceries up in the car for them. You see somebody behind you getting $10 worth of stuff and they don't look like they got five cents to their name? Put it on my tab. And then don't just say, put it on my tab. Say, let me tell you why I'm going to put it on my tab. Because Jesus put my sins on His tab and I'm forgiven. Amen. Whoa, what? There you went in 2.1 seconds from buying them some waffles to buying them eternal life. God has a lot invested in you. He ain't just sending you to Walmart for you to go get some waffles. Then, spirit. Are you displaying the fruit of the spirit? Is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, gentleness, goodness, faithfulness, self-control evident in your life? God's got a lot invested in you. He didn't just put you on this planet to be Eeyore or Cocklebert and to be an irritated Christian all the time. He wants you to show the fruit of the Spirit. That's right. Brothers and sisters, there's enough people hurting. Mm -hmm. They don't need us to be rude to them. They need somebody to come up and say, you know what, I don't know what's going on in your life, but you are valuable. What is that? You are loved from the movie? Special? Special yeah. We need to speak some love and truth in people's life. And then look at this. How does God get this fruit out of our life? First, He cultivates it. He comes and sometimes He's going to dig around the roots. You think that's fun for the tree? You think it's fun when God comes sometimes and cultivates and what He has to do is He has to tear out some dirt and some junk out of our lives to get what He wants. The other is He fertilizes it. And I know Christians who day after day, week after week, month after month, and year after year, they get fertilized with the Word of God and it seems like it does nothing. And so why? We're not saved by our fruitfulness, but for fruitfulness. 
As Jimmy's pointed out, faith alone saves, but faith, saving faith is never alone. Alright, in closing. You ever wonder why Jimmy and I spend so much time talking about repentance? I'm going to give you two reasons. First is for sure a hardcore biblical truth, and second is basically just kind of my conjecture, my opinion. Take it for what you want. First off, because Jesus did. He came and He started His ministry and He said, Repent, for the kingdom of God is at hand and believe in the gospel. And if Jesus said it, it's good enough for me. And then at the end, after He had done, died for our sins and been resurrected and He was teaching the Emmaus disciples, He said, Now y'all go out and tell about what? Repentance and forgiveness to all the nations. As Marty said this morning, you know what, brothers and sisters? God doesn't call people to foreign missions. He's commanded each and every one of us. But here, let me tell you the second reason why we talk a lot about it. Because I think largely, not necessarily crossway, but largely I feel that it's absent from our churches. Listen to this. This will stop you in your tracks This that I read this week. This pastor said, Today it's not about repentance, it's about our feelings. It's not about prayer, it's about coffee and donuts. It's not about revolution, it's about the status quo. It's not about sanctification and righteousness, it's about making money. It's not about discipleship, it's about book and CD sales. Mm. It's not about cleaning our hearts, it's about keeping the carpets clean. As Todd Agnew sings, my Jesus would never be accepted in my church. The blood and dirt on his feet might stain the carpet. I think you'd prefer Bill Street to the stained glass crowd. He comes today saying, where's the beef? Where's repentance? And let me finish with this. I know a little over, but listen. If you want to know what repentance is, it's simply this. Change in mind that results in a change in action. That's right. With regards to what? Three things quickly. God, self, and others. God. What I change my ideas about. First off, sin. If God says He hates it, I hate it. If He says He loves it, I love it. Do I say my sin is just something I'm born with? It's how God made me. I'm a product of my environment and I can't help it. It's generational sin. It's my parents' fault. Well, everybody else is doing it. Just the peers I'm hanging out with. Or maybe it's 50 shades of gray. Mine's not as bad as yours. Therefore, I'm doing okay. Or do you see it as transgression, iniquity, and sin? Transgression that it's rebellion. Iniquity that it's crookedness. And sin that it's missing the mark. And so what you do is you flee it and you grow in holiness. The other thing is... Not only sin, but son. You grow in the grace and knowledge of Christ. Are you learning more and more about Christ? Do you know more and more about Christ in 2019 than you did 2015? Do you look more like Christ in 2019 than you did 2017? And in Scripture, what does Romans 12 2 say? You need to renew your mind. That literally means renovate it. Tear out all the garbage. Well, how do you do that? You put the Word of God into it. And then about others. When I see Jimmy, do I just say, well, he's a Christian? Or do I say, that is my brother? Do you see the difference? And remember, how's our one another level? When I see lost people, do I say, well, man, they're, you know, they're lost and they're, uh, that Muslim, they're my enemy. They want to probably blow me up. Or do I see them as someone that's dying and going to hell? And then self. Think, how do you see yourself? By what Hollywood says or the Holy Word says? And then how do you treat yourself? You treat yourself like a temple or a trash can. So Jesus comes saying, where's the beef? Where's the faith? Where's the repentance? Oh, he's going to find a lot of big fluffy buns and whole jars of pickles and the best lettuce, tomato, and onion on the market. But is he going to find faith? And the message is clear, brothers and sisters. We cannot presume on the grace of God. He's looking for fruit. And if He don't find it, it may be cut down. Let's pray. Father, we thank You for this day. Thank You for this time that You've given us. Father, I just pray that if there's any decision that needs to be made today for Christ, that, Father, You will...
uh, prick the heart of the person here today that needs to make that decision. Father, be it to step away from some sin, to turn from uh, to you, Father. Uh, Father, be it to uh, become a member of this church. Father, be it to get saved. Father, to follow you in believers' baptism. We just ask that during the time of invitation that you would bless it and speak to each person that is here today. For it's in Jesus' wonderful and precious name I pray. Amen. You think about mainstream America, you know what mainstream America believes? Good people go to heaven, bad people go to hell, but you've got to be really, really, really bad to go to hell. I mean, God's a God of love. How can He send people to hell? And even people that don't go to church, they got good qualities, so why would you be so judgmental? Dr. Rogers said most people in America are egomaniacs or strutting their way to hell thinking they're too good to be damned. And the popular belief is this, the gate to heaven is wide and the gate to hell is narrow and it directly contradicts what Jesus said. One guy said the fact there's a highway to hell and a stairway to heaven ought to tell you something about the anticipated traffic numbers. So we believe good people go to heaven, bad people go to hell, but you've got to be really, really bad to go to hell. So 99.93456% of us are good folks. It's heresy. You've got to put your faith in Jesus Christ. Remember what I said? Yes, I believe Jesus on Lee Street. But can I tell you, the moment that I close my eyes, the last great test of faith is going to be death. And then the other side of that is repentance. And so has my faith resulted in the fruit of repentance. Know that today is the day of salvation. Come believe, receive, confess, and repent of your sins because Jesus warns all who do otherwise will perish. Stand with us and sing. So I'll stand and turn to page 330. Amazing grace How sweet the sound That saved a wretch like me lost, but now I'm found, was blind, but now I see.